okay, well, we are nearing the end of our look through 1 John. We've got one more week. Next week, we're finishing. Um, and then, let's see, that's the day before we leave for camp. So then the Sunday after we get back, we get back on a Saturday. That next day, we're not having youth. So like two weeks from today, no youth. Uh, because no one is going to be alive. Uh, so we'll just meet in the, or you can go with your families to just the main service uh, that Sunday. And then the week after that, we're going to do a little one-shot thing here. Tim, Pastor Tim and I will both be kind of talking about baptism and communion. What are they? Should you guys be baptized? Should you guys be taking communion? All of these things. I'm going to send out an email announcement uh, this week, and we'd really like for your parents to be here for that as well, so we can have that conversation together as families. Uh, and then the week after that, we're going to do a seven-week video series uh, called Soul. It's like a teen-focused uh, video series. It's kind of like Christianity Explored, another series, uh, and it's a video series, and then we'll, it has small group questions and all that stuff, and it's basically a look through the Gospel of Mark, and it's going to be really good, and it'll be a good summer thing for us to do before school starts back up. Um, so, uh, I hope First John's been helpful for you. It has been for me. It's been challenging. It's been convicting for me as I've been preparing sermons, as I've been teaching you guys. Um, it's also uh, been, well, it's been challenging. Like, as I'm examining myself, as I'm examining what John has been saying should be true about us as believers in Jesus. But it's also filled me with great hope and great assurance of who Christ is and what he's done. So I hope that's true for you. And I didn't get to listen to Trent's sermon last week, but I read through his notes, and I think he handled uh, the second half of chapter 4 really well. If you guys weren't here, he defined love in a way that I've never quite heard, and it was really good. He said in our old life, our old life in Adam, we fill ourselves from taking from others. So we're always takers, right? That's what we are naturally. And there's a problem with this because we're never full. We take, 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 take from people, but we're never filled up. But in our new life, our new life in Christ, we give to others from our fullness in God. And the wonderful thing is that when we are filled with the fullness of God, we're never empty. So as much as we give away and as much as we love others, we're still never empty because we're full from God. And this is great. So our new life in Christ, what it means to love then is we are no longer takers, but we are fillers. We are givers. And that's, that's great. I love that. Uh, so we no longer see people as commodities, as things that can benefit us. But we, we see people, all people, as those who can be filled with the love of God. And God has given us the great joy, the great responsibility as this church to be fillers, to be lovers of people. That's great. Well, Trent also mentioned that John is the book of First John is like a wad of Christmas tree lights. Do you remember this? I said it's a beautiful thing, but it sometimes seems like you can't see the string, see the pattern. Paul, in his letters, we can very easily make out his logic and make out his argument where he's going. He's going from point A to point B. Uh, you can kind of see where he's going. He'll often end a section by asking a question, and then the very next verse, he'll answer his question. It's very easy uh, to read and follow that way. Well, John is like a lot of Christmas tree lights. He's not like a bird flying from point A to point B, but he's like a butterfly, just kind of like all over the place. Uh, and Or maybe even like a tornado, right? He's like spiraling upwards. And so like as he's going, he's like coming around to the same point he made like two chapters ago. And if 
you guys were paying attention with, when J.J. read our text from today, 5, 1 through 12. You're like, I've heard this, John. You're saying the same thing that you've been saying over and over and over again. Let's get to something new here. Uh, well, this is good. He, the, the Puritans had a phrase when they would preach. They would often preach like two or three Sundays in a row on like one verse, on the same text. Because they said they felt that there were further gleanings from the same crop. So he, they mean when you're a farmer, let's say we have a wheat harvest. We go in and we take all the big stalks, we get our big wheat harvest, and we go and bushel those and sell them. But then we can go back and find tons of little, still very useful things on the ground like, that have fallen off of the stalk. Well, this is the same true, this is very true for us here. Uh, it's a new text, but John is giving us further gleanings from the same crop. He's basically reiterating himself, but he's kind of packaging it in a new way. And I think the question that he's trying to answer uh, in our text today is, what is a Christian? Who is a Christian? So that's what we're going to try to answer today. What is a Christian? So let me ask you all, either from what you remember, from what we've talked through in First John, or just from these full libraries of theology in your heads, uh, what is a Christian? What would you guys say? Probably lots of different answers that we might be able to answer this with. Adam. Okay, abides in God's love. That's from John, right? Yeah. Okay, loves God, obeys Him, follows His word. Yeah. What else? Okay. So trust in Christ and the work that they've done, that he's done on your behalf, right? Yeah? Okay, so one who not only believes in the message of forgiveness and salvation, but then tells others about it as well. Any other thoughts? Just off the tops of your, of your heads. All right, well, these are all good things, all good uh, indicators of maybe who a Christian is, uh, well, I want to look at what John says. Uh, and let's, let's read together 5.1. And it may not be immediately clear what he's saying, but he says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So what is first true of a Christian? This seems, it, the answer that you may think may not be the answer that I'm going to give. What do you think John says? What is a Christian? What does he answer? Born of God. So at first we might say someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, right? Someone who believes in Jesus is someone who's a Christian. But John is saying that someone who believes in Jesus is a fruit. Is like, you know, like we talk about fruit a lot, like fruits of the Spirit. So like, I don't just become patient and gentle, right? Being patient and gentle is a fruit of God's work in my life. Well, believing in Jesus is a similar fruit. Someone uh, who is a Christian has first been born of God, being born of God, receiving birth from above, born again, right? We've seen John talk about being born again a couple times in this, in this book, and we see him talk about it. Certainly, Jesus, who's Jesus talking about being born again to in the Gospel of John? Anybody? John chapter 3? Jesus talks about being born again. Who's that guy he's talking to? 
Yeah, sorry. Nicodemus. All right. So, got an assignment today. We get home, we can read through John chapter 3 and read more about being born again. But John, along with nearly every other biblical writer, places God as the primary source, the primary mover in our salvation. Left to ourselves, we don't want anything to do with God. Paul calls us dead in our trespasses. He's basically calling us spiritual corpses. You guys remember the kind of the word picture I gave you a few weeks back about us like being buried in our caskets under the ground, right? And uh, we can say, just like Jesus, why, to, to, to the tempter, to Satan, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? We want, were once dead, but now we are made alive. So uh, we were dead. We are spiritual corpses. But then God, in his mercy, chooses to redeem some, to give life to some of these corpses. And there's nothing about these corpses that are inherently good about themselves. They're inherently better than some of the other corpses, are there? In Deuteronomy 7, God talks about how he chose Israel. Uh, and he's, do you, anybody know this text, Deuteronomy 7? Why does God say that he chose Israel? Does anybody know this? It's a good text. He says, it wasn't, be- yeah, do you know? What's that? No, it's actually, he says the opposite. He says it wasn't because you were especially godly. It wasn't especially because you were a beautiful or big people. I chose you because you were the weakest of the people. Because you see, if I had chosen like this big nation that had this awesome army and awesome king, the other people in the world would just say, of course Israel's awesome. They have an awesome army. No, he chose this nation that wasn't even really a nation. There was a, a couple million people in slavery And then he saved them because they were the weakest of all the people. And I think the writers in the New Testament are saying the same thing. And John is saying the same thing here. God chooses some of the weakest and most ugly people spiritually, right? And he makes them new and he gives them life. Uh, But just like Israel, we can tend to convince ourselves that we had something to do with our salvation, with our being saved, that we were like spiritually beautiful, right? Uh, and I found an interesting article this week about when we share our testimony with others. Uh, maybe you guys have shared your testimony, or I'm sure you've heard people uh, share their testimony. And listen to this. This is from the article. The, this guy writes, Most testimonies have one thing in common. Me. Just listen. The testimony will usually be about what their life was like before they were saved and how different everything has been since their conversion. They'll share about how they've been set free from addiction, depression, financial bondage, or some other painful reality. And now they're filled with joy and peace. And throughout the testimony, you'll hear a lot about them and their story. And these, amazing, these are amazing things that we should celebrate, right? These are good things that have happened since they've become Christians. But most of the time, you'll hear surprisingly little about God. Uh, and isn't that true? Perhaps that's true of us as we think about what God has done in our lives. We recognize the, God, the things that God is doing, but we rarely recognize God and who is the one that is doing it. Uh, so perhaps you wouldn't put on a theological exam what saves you is yourself. But sometimes we think of ourselves as the primary savers of ourselves. We do this by saying, all right, I believe the right things about God. I go to the right church. I occasionally post some scripture on Facebook so everybody knows I'm a Christian. Uh, I read the Bible occasionally. I don't do the bad things that the really bad kids do, right? 
and put all these things together, mix them up with an egg beater, and what do we got? Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, a Christian, right? But what's missing in all of those things? The gospel. We just listed a bunch, of, a bunch of stuff that you're doing. You've placed the whole emphasis of your salvation on yourself rather than the great God, who the Bible is explicitly clear over and over, is the one doing the saving, the one giving the life or giving the new birth to a dead corpse. So a Christian, John says, is one who has first been born of God, received life from God. Remember when we talked about abiding in him and how there's nothing inherently alive about a leaf or a grape, right? What happens when it's detached from the vine or the branch? What happens to a leaf when it's detached from the branch? It dies, right? Unless it has the life of the tree, uh, it, it's dead. So John is saying you must be attached. You must have life that is uh, not in you, life that is not dead, like Paul says in Galatians 2, it is no longer I who live. I, I'm, I'm just a dead corpse, but it's Christ who lives in me. Can a corpse go out? All right, not spiritually speaking now. Physically speaking, can a corpse go out and like apply for a job or work a job? Can a corpse like go to school and learn about astrophysics? No, there's nothing a corpse can do, Right? A corpse must be alive before it can do any of those things. So, similarly, can a spiritual corpse love God, or love others, or love his commandments, or even have faith in Christ? No, these are all fruits of having first received life from Christ. So we start here. John is saying, what is a Christian? A Christian is one who has been born of God, who has received life from him. But, John is also a pastor, We've seen him be very pastoral in this letter, being sensitive to his readers and to us. He knows that there are some of you that might be anxious, saying, wait, I don't, I don't know that I'm born of God. So he's going to address you, uh, but he also knows that there are some here who are falsely presuming that they are born of God. Say, of course I'm born of God. I go to Desert Springs Church. Hello? Uh, no, John is writing to you also. So he gives us, Six tests to examine yourself, whether or not you've been born of God. And this is important stuff for us to use to examine ourselves. So first, someone who has been born of God, first, in 5.1, we've already read it, believes that Jesus is the Christ. So someone who has been born of God believes that Jesus is the Christ. We'll talk more about this in our sixth and final test, but this goes back to what we were talking about two weeks ago about false teachers and false teaching. A Christian isn't someone who just believes in God. A Christian isn't someone who just believes in the teachings of Jesus or even maybe even has a loftier view of Jesus, believes that he's actually the Son of God. No, a Christian is one who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Is Christ Jesus' last name? Like, it could have easily just been like Jesus Johnson. Jesus, I don't know. That's a funny last name. What? Jesus Sherman? <laughs> it's a funny name. Uh, no, what, what does Christ mean? Is that, was that Joseph's last name? What does Christ mean? It's a Greek word for a Hebrew word. What's the Hebrew word? You guys know this, but Messiah. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word of Messiah, which meant the promised one, the anointed one, the one who is coming to redeem God's people. So, Jesus, Christ, 
is a title saying Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the one who is the savior of all the world or all of God's people, the redeemer of his people, the one and only way that God has given uh, access to himself through salvation, through redemption of sins, all these things. And remember what we said two weeks ago, that believing that Jesus is the Christ is completely earth-shattering, completely world-shifting in the way we see the world, the way we see ourselves, the way we see others, and the way we see Jesus. We typically, as Americans, think to, tend to think that we can be a Christian. We can believe that Jesus is the Christ, maybe, that we believe rightly about God and sin and ourselves, but as long as we believe rightly about these things and then we just pray some prayer of repentance, then I can just go on living my life the same way that I was before, Right? I just I live as I want to live, I do as I want to do, but as long as I say, Jesus, you're the Christ, forgive me of my sins, then everything's great, right? Well, don't hear me wrong on this. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. All you must do is believe that Jesus Christ is the righteous one who has died in your place. But as the reformers would say, this is great. Maybe some of you have heard this. If you haven't, remember this. We are saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. What does that mean? We are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. I think what they were meaning was, when we, are, when we actually have faith that saves us, it produces a world-shifting change in our lives. So we believe in, that Jesus is the Christ, yes, but then that changes everything about our life. In John's understanding, it would be impossible for you to believe rightly about Jesus and then go on living your life however you want to. John has a much fuller view of what salvation means. So believe rightly that Jesus is the Christ, yes, but then use this second test to examine if you have actually been born of God. The second test is that you love God. Again, from verse 1, you can't love God unless you have been born of him, which is exactly what Trent taught you last week from chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And from 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So now, the very one that we had hated before, this God, like JJ said, Mr. God, uh, El Señor, uh, maybe we even thought of him as like some dictator, some Scrooge, some guy who's out there just to ruin our fun, some killjoy, right? Now, this one who we once hated, we see as glorious, as beautiful, as magnificent, as like the satisfaction of all of our greatest desires. We actually begin to love God more and more and more. And this can only happen if we're born of him, if we have received life from him. So then he goes right into loving others, which is our third test. You love God, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you love God, and you love others. You love others who have been also born of God. John says that if you have been born of God, you now intuitively love the other people that have been born of God, meaning your brothers and sisters. You're born from the same spiritual father. So... You guys know that siblings are kind of a funny thing, right? Uh, have you ever known anybody who, like, talks bad about their brother and sister, like, all day? Like, all they do is rip on their brother and sister, how annoying they are or whatever. But then if you say 
something very similar that you might have heard that person say about their sibling. You say the same thing about their sibling. They, they get like all defensive. Like, how dare you, man? You can't say that about my sister. Like, I, you just said the same thing like 20 minutes ago. But the fact that it's you saying that about their sibling and not them, like they've got this unique sibling relationship that they realize that like they're in it for the long haul. They're going to be in this thing together for the next 80 years, and they can say certain things about each other that somebody outside of the family can't say, right? It's kind of funny that way. There's a natural relationship uh, that even though sibling relationships might always not be peachy, right? Might not always be hunky-dory, okay? There's a familial family bond that recognizes that they're in it together for a long time. So this doesn't mean that we only love other Christians, that we get to hate anyone who's not a Christian, right? No, we love all people as fillers, right? Not as takers. But we do so especially with other Christians because we are the same body, right? What Paul says in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, how he talks about us being body. The head on the body can't hate the foot, right? We're all in the same body. And we certainly take communion together from the same body of Christ. We can't hate each other. We love each other. And so a test of our being born of God is that we begin to love each other, the others who have been born of God, more and more and more. Uh, But then John does a funny, funny thing in verse 2. Last week, as Trent was teaching, we saw John saying over and over and over, you know how you know if you love God, he said in chapter 4? Anybody... Can anyone sum that up, what he's kind of saying in chapter 4? In chapter 4, he says, you know how you love God? What's the test? Anybody? You love others, right? You're a a filler. You're not a taker. But then, John does something really kind of crazy here in chapter 5, verse 2. 5, 2, he says, by, listen. Remember last week he said, you know how you love God? You, you, You know how you know if you love God? You love your brother. In 5.2, he says, by this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. Now he seems to be saying, you know how you know if you really love others? If you love God. Last week he said, you know how you know if you love God? You love others. John, what the heck? Like, maybe he finished chapter 4 and took a nap and woke up and like totally lost his train of thought. And maybe he's contradicting himself. But it seems like he's kind of going in a circle, right? Well... Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've got a big, thick book of his on 1 John. He's been really helpful for me uh, in preparing these messages. Listen to this. He says, John sometimes starts with the love of God and then goes on to the love of the brothers. And at other times, he starts with the love of the brothers and arrives at the love of God. And sometimes he starts with the commandments and then goes on to the love of the brothers and the love of God. It's, It's immaterial where he starts. What Joan says. Here's a circle, and there are these particular points on it. Now, because it's a circle, you must have points, right? An infinite amount of points, but we'll just say three for our analogy here. If you don't have one, if you don't have one of these points, you do not have any. It's no longer a circle, right? It's just a line. You can start at whatever point you like, and if you want to know whether you are right on the point, make sure that the others are also present. In other words, the great thing to know is that we are on the circle that we have the life, and we know that if we have life, it will manifest itself in certain ways. If I have one, 
meaning I love God or I love the brothers or I love God's commandments, then I have all of them. If I'm doubtful of one, let me examine the rest. Let me examine if I actually have the rest. So he's saying, if, if I don't love the brothers, then let me be doubtful that I actually love God. If I don't love God, let me be doubtful that I actually don't love the brothers. So you seeing, see what he's saying? He's saying if you have been born of God, you have the life of Christ, meaning you don't say when you become a Christian, maybe someday if I get around to it, I might actually start loving people. Maybe. No. Uh, Lloyd-Jones says that John is saying, if you don't love others, if you're a continual taker and not a filler, and you don't love God and his commandments, you're not on the circle. It's quite likely that you have not been born of God. You subtract one of the points in the circles, and you don't have a circle. So I hope I haven't flooded you all with doubt again. Uh, I hope you'll remember what John said in 2, verses 1 through 2. Just in case, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But, John seems to be saying pretty clearly, a person who has been born of God, what was the first test? Believes that Jesus is the Christ. Second test, he or she loves God. Third test, loves others. And then we've already mentioned it, but the next test is, he gives us in 5.3, is that Someone who has been born of God loves God's commandments. 5.3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So quick aside, that we should spend an entire Sunday on, but here's a little free sermon within a sermon. Uh, John isn't talking about just the Ten Commandments here, and the Old Testament law. He's not saying, someone who loves God loves the Ten Commandments. We're no longer now in the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament law, okay? We're no longer bound to the Mosaic law. That's why we don't, that's why we're free to eat pork, and we don't have to, like, go to the temple any longer because we wear a shirt that has two pieces of different cloth sewn together, right? Some of this stuff sounds crazy, uh, but we are not under that covenant anymore, But Jesus, in the New Covenant, actually ups the ante for the law. And he gives us what Paul calls the law of Christ. So some theologians boil the law of Christ down to two things. The commands that the Lord Jesus himself gave to us and exhibited to us uh, as an example in his own life. So like all the stuff that we saw from the Sermon on the Mount last, last fall, last summer... Don't be angry with anyone. Don't lust. Keep your word. Love your enemies. Don't do religious stuff for show. Don't love your money more than God. Don't be anxious. And on and on and on. That's just from the Sermon on the Mount. We've got tons of other commands from Jesus. Tons of other things that we see in his life through the other Gospels. Uh, This is part of the law of Christ. Part of the commands that we are now under. Then also the law of Christ consists of the demands laid upon believers... uh, in the New Testament, the New Covenant document. So like when we read Ephesians together uh, in our Wednesday time, all these things that Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, be imitators of God, walk in love, sexual immorality and all impurity, covenantness must not be named among you. All these are now commands from God to us in the law of Christ. And then certainly the commands that John gives us in 1 John. Don't love the world or the things in the world. Abide in him. 
love one another, all these things. So the law of Christ doesn't like cancel the law of Moses. It actually ups the ante into a law of the heart, a law which Jesus sums up in two commands, which are the law can be summed up in two, the entire Old Testament law can be summed up in two commands. The law of Christ is this. That's the second one. The first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So basically we can say passion for God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and compassion for people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so what's the point? Why don't we just do all that? Someone who has been born of God loves the law of Christ. Loves these commandments. Why? Because they see them not as burdensome, not as something that's out to ruin my fun, right? Or to crush me with guilt, but as freeing for God's glory and for our good. Maybe you've heard this. Someone say, this is a great little phrase. Write this down. You obey what you love. You obey what you love. And I think that's absolutely true. If we hear the commands of God and scoff at them, continue in our sin, we are saying, not only God, do I not trust you, not, do I, I don't trust that you have my good in mind, but I don't love you. I don't trust and love you enough to obey you. I love popularity more than you. I love myself more than you, so I will obey myself and others rather than you, rather than you, than your commands. You obey what you love. So, in short, if we scoff at God's commands, it's highly unlikely that we have the life of Christ in us, that we have been born of God. But, then he says, in 4 and 5, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So what is John meaning here when he says, we overcome the world? I'm pretty sure he's meaning we overcome worldliness, the things of the world. And how did he define worldliness? Remember, remember our worldliness talk from 1 John? Anybody even remember the chapter that worldliness comes from? All right. 2.15. Flip, flip back over there. Where John said in 15, uh, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then 16, he defines worldliness as three things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions. You guys remember when we talked about that? If you are born of God over the course of your life, you will begin to overcome those worldly desires. And what did he say in 15? 2.15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He's making the same point. You have not been born of God if you love the world more than God. He's making the same thing. Same point. Mess of Christmas tree lights here. Tornado. Same points over and over and over again. But then, so, uh, believes that Jesus is the Christ, loves God, loves others, loves his commands, and then uh, he gives us our last test, which are in verses 6 through 12. We're not going to go through all of this together because we've been going for a long time but uh, he talks about the blood the water the spirit it's kind of really confusing we don't have time to like talk through all of the options of what this means people have been theologians have been giving us their interpretations of what the water and the blood is for like 20 centuries Uh, but quickly what i think in studying through all these options what when john says that 
Jesus has come to us through the water and the blood. The water is referring to his baptism. Uh, when John the Baptist baptized him, so Jesus was identifying himself with us as a human, as our representative, and then began to baptize others, sending his apostles out to baptize others. Uh, representing a repentance, a turning of sin and to Christ. And then the blood, I think, is John talking about Jesus' atoning work on the cross, right? So the water and the blood, along with the Holy Spirit, testify about who Jesus was and what he came to do. Okay, so what's the point of all this testifying and testimony talk here in these seven verses? John is saying, hello, yep, John is saying, you know how you like tend to like naturally just accept somebody's testimony. Like, we hear testimony all day. When you're around the dinner table, your parents ask you what happened today at school. You tell them a story about what happened, and your parents believe you. They believe your testimony, your, your story about what happened. We naturally do this, and especially in the court of law, we accept a witness's testimony about what they saw happen, right? Well, if we accept, John says in verse 9, if we accept a human testimony... We had better accept the testimony from God himself. And what is God's testimony? What is the clearest thing that God has ever told us about himself? A person. Jesus. His testimony to us is a person. God has explained himself to us. He has explained his character. He has explained what was going on in the whole Old Testament. He explained how he'll save us. He's explained himself to us in the person of Jesus. But here's something shocking. Excuse the mild irreverence here, because God could never like be on trial. God can never be like put on the witness stand where humans could like pelt him with questions. But it's like we're in the courtroom, okay? God is on the stand giving testimony about himself, who he is, and the person is Jesus. And then there are some people in the courtroom who, says, who say, no, I don't believe him. I don't believe his testimony. That's what John says in verse 10 here, 510. Whoever does not believe God, believes his testimony, has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. God isn't lying, but I'm saying if I don't believe in him, you're a liar. If you do not repent of your sin and trust in the work of Christ, you're saying, God, you are a liar. You are not who you say you are. Jesus is not who you say he is. And this is not the way of salvation that you say that you have provided. You are a liar. I don't think I need to emphasize very strongly here that this is a very arrogant and dangerous position to be in. Calling God a liar. So the test John gives us to examine whether you are born of God or not, that you believe Jesus is the Christ, that you love God, that you love others, that you love his commandments, and that you accept the testimony that God has given about himself in Jesus. So, I said I'd get back to 2, 1 through 2. If you're all of a sudden flooded with doubt again, oh no, I don't love God as much as I should. I still probably am more of a taker from people than a filler. I really struggle sometimes to love God's commands. What then? Well, I quoted from Martin Lloyd-Jones earlier. If you guys haven't heard of this guy, he's one of the greatest 
pastors of the, ninth, of the 20th century. He pastored in England from the, in the earlier part of the century up into the, to the 50s. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people have been encouraged by this man in the last hundred years. Okay? So this guy says this. I am still working out this faith. There are times when I fail because in my folly I do not run to the strong tower because I try to fight in my own strength and the enemy defeats me. There are times when I go down. Now this is important. At that particular point when I am down, there is nothing that is so liable to happen to me as the enemy will come to me and say something like this. Ah well, you failed. You've fallen. You've sinned against the Lord, the Lord, Martin. You've gone back. What's the use of this talking about your faith? Look at yourself. And there I am, down on the ground, overwhelmed with a sense of failure and frustration. And I wonder whether I have a right to turn to God and to pray. I have left myself down. I have let, I have let God down. I have let Christ down. And I fell utterly hopeless with a sense of despair and futility. Anybody been there? I'm a spiritual mess. I don't love God. I don't love his commandments. I don't do these things well. I don't have a right to pray. Now, there is nothing more precious at that point than to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he tells me that though I have sinned, though I have failed, and we have already found it in this epistle, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says, there is nothing then that is so enables me to overcome as that deliverance from sin and failure, from that sense of despair that tends to overwhelm me when I feel I have gone down and cannot rise again. The blood of Christ will cleanse me, and I rise up and go forward on my journey. So he's saying, trust in Jesus. Trust in the blood of Christ who will cl- that will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Trust that he lived the life that you did not live. Trust him that he died the death that you should have died. Trust that today. Trust that tomorrow. Trust that for the rest of your life. And when you do, you will, I guarantee it because it's here promised to us, you will begin to see evidences of that belief, of that being born, that you love God more, that you love others more, that you love his commands more. But for all of you out there who say, of course I've been born of God, I go to Desert Springs Church, if those things are absent from your life, your love of God, your love of others, your love of his commands, it's likely that you haven't been born of him and that you're making God a liar. It's healthy and wise to, every now and then, examine ourselves to make sure that there is fruit, evidences of birth, of God's grace in your life. So repent, believe, trust in Christ. But remember... To all of you others out there who are still flooded with guilt, remember that J.D. Greer quote like six weeks ago, if you base your assurance on what you do or how well you do it, you'll never find assurance. You'll always be wondering if you're doing enough. So look at your fruit, but don't make that be your only source of assurance. Let your source of assurance be the advocate who is, ad- who is arguing on his life and record and not on yours. So if these evidences are present in your life, praise God. These are gifts from God, and that fruit uh, of new birth and new life is in you. Continue to trust in him, and I'm 
confident, as my confidence in the script, is in the scriptures, that you will begin to love God more. You will begin to love others more. That you will begin to love his commands more. This is why we abide in him, because he is the only one that gives life, that sustains us.